All right, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. The series that we are in going through Psalm 119 is called, Oh, How I Love Your Law. And the psalmist is writing about God's law, all 176 verses of this psalm. And he's praising the law. He's telling us why he loves God's law. How God's law is his comfort and affliction. How God's law provides him daily guidance. And a lot of that sounds strange to our ears. Law is just something that tells us what we can't do, right? It's a bunch of rules that we have to follow. Why would anyone love that? But that's not the way that God's people should think about God's law. God's law is a gift. It's a blessing. It's a benefit to us. It flows out of God's own character. So when we learn the law, we're actually learning something about God himself. It reveals his will to us. It shows us the best way to live. It shows us how we were designed or intended to live. And so we want to come to this psalm with humility, ready to learn from the psalmist, to follow in his footsteps and and to learn why he loves God's law so much. And we have a lot to learn. So this morning we will look at verses 109 to 112 of Psalm 119. And for the first 15 minutes or so of the message, we'll just learn specifically from these verses, what they mean, how they apply to our lives. And then for the remainder of our time, we will zoom out to the bigger picture of the Bible to learn more about a particular aspect of God's law. And this morning we'll be continuing Uh, to look at the role of the priests in carrying out God's law for worship, ceremonial laws that Israel followed. And we'll see what that still has to do with us today. So follow along as I read Psalm 119, starting in verse 109. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Let's start by taking a closer look at verse 109. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. What does the psalmist mean when he says, I hold my life in my hand? Some, t- some translations might say, I hold my soul in my hand. It's a phrase that's used to describe danger. You might hear someone say, boy, he's taking his life into his hands by doing that. That's the idea behind this. First Samuel 19, verse 5, just for an example, this is speaking of David and his battle with Goliath. It says, for he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. And the psalmist is speaking here about the danger that he faces from his enemies. But in spite of that danger, he's committed to following God's law. So let me make three points briefly about this danger. First, the danger we face doesn't change our responsibility. I do not forget your law. Okay, so remembering, not forgetting, has two parts. One of them has to do with your head. It's the content. He will actually remember what God's law says in his head. The other part of it is behavior. Because sometimes the Bible talks about forgetting 
as not obeying, not doing, not following through with. So it can mean disregarding or ignoring God's law. He doesn't do that. So the danger we face doesn't change our responsibility. Even when there's danger, we're still responsible to obey God's law. Second thing, the danger we face doesn't change our ethics. You might expect the psalmist to give an excuse. Something like, well, God, there was this really big danger, and if I had followed your law, it wouldn't have helped me avoid the danger. So I had to disobey your law. But he doesn't do that. He obeys. Charles Spurgeon said, they that say all things are, or excuse me, they say that all things are fair in love and war, but the holy man thought not so. While he carried his life in his hand, he also carried the law in his heart. So when they say all is fair in love and war, they're saying extreme circumstances make ethics go out the window. You can do whatever you want or need to at that point. And Spurgeon says, no, that's not what the psalmist says. He carried God's law in his heart. So the danger we face doesn't change our ethics. And third, the danger we face doesn't change God's loving providence. Danger is not unusual for Christians. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So yes, you're suffering, but trust God and continue to do what's good. And Christians should have an eternal perspective. We're not limited to just what's happening in the here and now or what's happening in this life. Thomas Manton writes, For a man to stand comparing his interest or sufferings here in this world with the glory revealed is as foolish a thing as if a man should set a thousand pound weight with a feather. He's really just saying the same thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The next verse then, Psalm 119, verse 110, says, The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. We're told in Scripture that the world will hate us. But why? Why does the world hate Christians? Well, one reason might be envy. Sometimes Christians have a certain respect. Certainly Christians should have a joy that doesn't change with the circumstances. We have peace. And so someone looking on might be envious of those things. In Esther chapter 5, we're told that when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Everybody else seemed to fear Haman. Mordecai, as a Jew, feared God. He didn't fear Haman. Haman was angered by that. Another reason that the world might hate us is hatred at holiness. If Christians live a holy life, that can engender the hatred of the world. Why? Because it makes them feel their guilt before God. This is what John says was the case with Cain and Abel. When Cain killed Abel, here's how John writes about this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. He says, we should not be like Cain, 
who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain saw Abel's holiness or righteousness and hated him for it. So what kind of snares will the world set for us? A kind of standard strategy that people who are opposing Christians might take is to make Christians seem obnoxious to authorities, to society, to the culture, to the elites. They make laws and statutes that Christians know that they really can't obey and still please God. Laws that make it more difficult to obey Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Sound a little bit like our culture? Maybe laws like hate speech laws or something, where if you say this or if you don't say the prescribed words, then you can get yourself in trouble. Daniel faced something like this. Daniel chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 say that all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And so Daniel faced this kind of situation where he was hated because of his holiness and because of the respect with which he was held by the king. And so something was done to make him obnoxious in the king's sight. A law was passed that made it difficult for him to follow the law and obey God at the same time. And again, we shouldn't be surprised. We're still called to be faithful, to act ethically, to obey in the midst of those kinds of situations. Spurgeon again. Speaking of the psalmist in this verse, he says, He was not entrapped and robbed, for he followed the king's highway of holiness, where God secures safety to every traveler. He did not err from the right, and he was not deterred from following it, because he referred to the Lord for guidance and obtained it. And when I read that, it made me think of Pilgrim's Progress, and Christian who, as long as he stayed on the path, he was safe. He was secure, even in the middle of difficulties. Our next verse, verse 111, says, Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. So what is our heritage in this verse? Calvin says that heritage means the thing men most desire and what most properly belongs to them. To be short, he says, it's another word for treasure. Treasure. And the whole law, the whole word of God is our heritage, our treasure. Why? Because it reveals God's will. It gives us true doctrine, truth about God. It gives us his precepts, his rules. It gives us his promises, what God has said he will do for his people. And our heritage is eternal. We've been made joint heirs with Christ. So Paul writes in Romans that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Maybe think of land and property and how that's been handled through the years. At times, in some cultures, you've had land that is something that is a, 
you can be a tenant farmer at will. In other words, you get to use the land, but the owner might at any point say, okay, off the land, I'm doing something else with it. A little better than that is when you have a lease situation for a period of years or a rental situation where there's a contract where you have an agreement to be able to use it for a period of time. Or you actually own it outright. You could have an inheritance that gives you that land. And the more permanent your heritage, the more valuable it is. Our heritage is eternal. It's permanent beyond this life. And the more permanent it is, the more valuable it is. So our heritage is very valuable. Asaph writes in Psalm 73, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Why is God our portion or our heritage or our treasure forever? Where do we get that? We learn it through the word. Better than any earthly treasure that will spoil or decay. And so Thomas Manton, commenting on this, he says, a worldly heritage may give us a playful, but it cannot give us a heartful. They which are rich and great in the world have more dishes at their tables, but those have a more delicious feast in their souls that have chosen God for their portion. Verse 12, excuse me, 112 then, the psalmist writes, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Here, here we see the psalmist's reason and his manner of obeying God's law. He says his heart is inclined toward God. He obeys God's statutes, his laws, his commands. How? By performing them or keeping them forever, universally, always, to the end, so constantly. His will, the psalmist's will, has been determined for or in favor of or toward God. He's got full commitment. This is like what Barnabas said to the church in Antioch when he visited them. This is Acts chapter 11. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So steadfast purpose. His heart, the psalmist says, was inclined to God. What does that mean? It means he loves God. Well, what does it look like to love God? How do you know if you love God? 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. That's what love looks like. There's a connection between love and law that we must not miss. See, we tend to think of those two things as the opposites. Love, we think of as following your feelings, and law, we think of as following somebody else's rules. The Bible integrates law and love together inseparably. What does Jesus say? If you love me, Keep my commandments. When they ask Jesus, what's the greatest law or commandment, what does he say? Love God. And the second is like it. Love others. On these two, all the other commands hang. So you can't rightly interpret any law in the Bible apart from love. 
love to God and love to others. And so the psalmist says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Because that's what love looks like. The principle that we kind of identified last week that we're going to continue with this week is that in Christ, the ceremonial law is still valid today. Now, why do we say that? Sounds strange. Because in one sense, it is correct to say that the ceremonial law no longer applies, right? We didn't walk in this morning with sacrifices to make. You didn't worry about mixed fibers on your clothes. You're not too worried about exactly what's in the food that you're going to eat this afternoon for lunch. We're not following all of the particular statutes of the ceremonial law. But there is another sense, a deeper sense, that's very important that we do not miss, in which we would say that the ceremonial law still continues today. It continues in Christ. He is fulfilling it for us right now. Okay? It's not that he just fulfilled it in the past. It's that he is fulfilling it right now, still today. And it's important for us to see that. We gave you a chart over the last couple of weeks and just kind of to briefly get this in our mind again. At the bottom, we have the law, the law underneath the law, which is God's character written into the very fabric of the universe and everything else that is law flows out of that. And Jesus, when he's asked, what's the greatest command? It's love God and the second is like it, love others. So what does that look like? What does it look like to love God and love others? Well, it looks like the Ten Commandments. Those are more particular versions of saying the same thing. And then we say, well, what does that look like in a society, when a society does that? That's the civil law. How do we know how to regulate those civil laws and what kind of penalties or what kind of reconciliation or, or uh, restitution? That's the case laws that help us understand that. Well, what about relationship with God that's broken when you break his law? What do we do about that? Well, that's what the ceremonial law is all about. It's teaching us what God has done to fix our law-breaking problem. And that comes out in several ways. We have the laws of separation. The Jews and Gentiles kept separate to show us the distinctness of the people of God. We have the laws of temple worship, the priests and the sacrifices and all the stuff that went into that being clean or unclean. That's kind of where our focus is as we're thinking about the role of the priest this morning. And then we have festivals and holidays as they went through their year and through the cycles of years. That the, the, the pattern of behavior through that period of time was a picture for them of what God was doing through all of time to redeem his people. All of that flows out of the law underneath the law, which flows from the very character of God himself. So last week, we began looking at the role of the priest and how Jesus fulfills it. We saw Exodus 28, where Aaron and his sons were commissioned to be priests. But the main thing we looked at last week was the person of Melchizedek, who was priest and king of Salem. We saw how that pointed forward to Jesus, the Messiah, who would be the king of kings and the great high priest. This week, we're going to continue on the same theme of priests, we're going to look at what the priests did, what their responsibilities were, 
just kind of in general, and how those roles also point us forward to Jesus and what he accomplishes for his people. I want to start you off this morning thinking about this with a quote from one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus. And here's what he said, speaking of the ministry of Jesus. Irenaeus says, he did not make void, but fulfilled the law by performing the offices of the high priest, propitiating God for men, suffering death that exiled man might go forth from condemnation and might return without fear to his own inheritance. The key thing there is that what Jesus did in his role as the priest did not make the law void. He didn't do away with it, but rather he fulfilled it. And he's still continuing to fulfill it today on our behalf. There are four roles or jobs of the priest that I want you to see this morning. For each, I'm just going to give you a quick explanation of what the priests did. And then we'll look at how Jesus fulfills each one of them. The first is this. The priest offers a sacrifice for sin. We read in Hebrews 9 verse 26 that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Old Testament priests offered sacrifices for sin. That was one of the main things they did. In Exodus chapter 29, the chapter after the one where Aaron and the priests are commissioned, we see the priests being consecrated or commissioned, set apart. As a group, they are told, every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. And the Old Testament priests were actually even themselves said to bear the guilt of the people as they carried out their sacrifices. Exodus 28 verse 38 says that Aaron shall, shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. But here's the point. What those priests did, they did daily. Over and over and over and over again. Why? Because the sacrifices that they made could never actually take away sins. In the Old Testament, people were not saved by making sacrifices. Those sacrifices could never take away sins. Why? Because they were animal sacrifices. And animal lives are not worth the same as human lives. So they had to be repeated over and over and over. What was the point? It pointed forward to Christ and what he was going to do. Like the example we've been using of the model car. When you order the new uh, car that's coming out next year and the car company, in our example, gives you a little model, you know, same color, same design as the one that you're going to get. And so you've got the model as kind of a down payment or promise of the one that they're making for you. And then when the real one is finally ready, you turn in the model and you get the real, the real thing. Well, that little model can't get you where you need to go. It's not designed to. Same way, the sacrifices in the Old Testament could never actually take care of sin. It wasn't designed to. It was a picture. It was pointing you forward to the one sacrifice that actually can and did deal with sin. 
And that's the sacrifice of Jesus. So when the Old Testament worshiper brought an animal to be sacrificed, what was he doing? He was displaying faith. He's displaying faith in the promises of God in the person of the Messiah. Now, he might not have known all the details, but he's displaying faith in what God said he would do to deal with sin. And salvation always has been and always will be by grace through faith alone. So when Jesus came, when Jesus offered himself, it was the final sacrifice He paid for all of the sins of all of God's people. There is no further price to be paid because his sacrifice, the value of it, is infinite. Not only is he a man, but he's also a sinless man who is God himself. If you go out to dinner and somebody pays for your dinner. Let's say, you know, you're at a, maybe it's some kind of business dinner or something. Somebody pays for your dinner. The server is not also going to charge you for your dinner because the price has already been paid. You don't need to pay it because someone else paid it for you. In the same way, God will not demand a payment of you that Christ has already paid for you. That would be unjust. And so Jesus has paid the price for all of the sins of all of his people and there is no further price to be paid. If you are a follower of Christ, you have no payment to make. Your salvation is secured by what Christ has done for you. And what that means is you can rest. You can rest in that, in what Christ has done for you, because there's no further work for you to do to achieve salvation. So don't go there. Well, doesn't that undermine the whole thing that we're saying about keeping the law? No, not at all. Because why do you keep the law? What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. So why keep the law? Not to gain salvation. You keep the law out of gratitude Because he has saved you. That's where the law comes in for the believer as a rule of living. So the priest offers a sacrifice for sin. The second role of the priest is that the priest symbolically brings the people near to God. Hebrews chapter 6, we read this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In the temple, in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was the the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where God's presence symbolically was. That place, the Holy of Holies, was separated from everything else by a curtain, a veil, No Israelite was allowed to enter behind the veil, not even the priests. The only exception to that was the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, in Jesus' day, if you were to go into the temple, the veil that was there in that temple was 30 feet wide. It was 60 feet high. 
the thickness of that veil was the thickness of a man's hand. It hung from a stone lintel that was 30 feet long. And it took 300 priests just to hang it up. This veil was not something small and insignificant. And it symbolized the barrier between God and man that is created by our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he was both the high priest who's making the offering and he was the spotless lamb of God who is the offering itself, the sacrifice. And we know that we're told that Jesus made the, the, the real offering in the heavenly tabernacle, in God's presence. But on earth, when Jesus died on the cross, strange things happened. The gospel writers describe for us some of the crazy things that went on. Well, one of the things that happened, Matthew tells us in chapter 27, verse 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now you tell me, is it possible for a man to tear from top to bottom a curtain that is as thick as a man's hand and is 60 feet tall? Not happening. So how did that happen? That's God himself tearing the veil. On the one hand, that symbolized God's judgment on the temple. We talked all through that as we talked about Matthew 28. But on the other hand, what it symbolized was that the way is now open to come into God's presence. Jesus has opened the way. There are plenty of places that you and I can't go. Places that you and I don't have the credentials to get into. Just to use kind of the, uh, an extreme example, if you went to some royal palace and you tried to go in, the guards would probably stop you and turn you away. But if the prince came out and said, no, 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 he's with me, then you would be admitted, not because of who you are, but because of who is escorting you in. In the same way, you and I don't qualify on our own to go into God's presence. But Jesus, our great high priest, brings us in. He draws us near to God. He has opened the way for us to come in. And so the author of Hebrews says that since all of this is true, that Jesus has opened the way, what should we now do? He says we should draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Do you ever feel that you can't come into God's presence because you're not good enough? Because you've done something sinful? See, this truth about Jesus teaches that if we come by faith, we can come with confidence to God. Because it was never on the basis of who we are that we were admitted in the first place. We are always and only brought in because of Jesus. And so we can come with confidence. The third role of the priest then is that the priest prays for the people. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. 
interceding is speaking to God on our behalf. So the high priest on his robes had stones on his shoulder that had the names of the tribes. And on his breastplate, there was a different stone for each of the tribes. And so when he went into the holy place or even into the holy of holies, he was there representing the people of God. He's not there just representing himself. He's representing the people. And he offered incense offerings. Those represent the prayers of the people. In John chapter 17, we have what is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's Jesus's prayer for his people. Let me give you a few examples. In verse 9 of John 17, Jesus is speaking of those that the Father has given him. In other words, believers, those who have faith in him. And Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. That's very particular. That means if you have faith in Jesus, Jesus is praying for you. I know that I appreciate it when people that I know are praying for me. I have Jesus praying for me. And if you're a believer, you do too. Jesus prays for his people. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. It's Jesus praying for his people. When I was in high school, we had a, a senior skip day in our senior year, and we wanted to make sure we didn't get in trouble. Teachers are nodding their head, shaking their heads at me. We followed all the rules and the policies and procedures that the school had of being absent. And we made sure that we got a, a note from our parents and we had it delivered that morning. So that, you know, people who had siblings would bring those notes in and all of that. And we went to an amusement park for the day. We went to Darien Lake. And um, some of the teachers expected it and were perfectly fine with it. I had one teacher, our science teacher, and our administrator who really were not happy with us. And so the science teacher decided to have a pop quiz that day, which meant that we all failed. And the administrator didn't want to listen to us because he said that's her prerogative as a teacher. Well, my best friend's dad was also the Bible teacher and the gym teacher. And he went to bat for us. He went and talked to the administration. He said, look, my son is old enough that he could be drafted and sent off to fight in another country on behalf of us. I think I can trust him for the day at the amusement park. And he interceded for us. It wasn't going to do any good for us to go to the administration because why would they listen to us? But him, they listened to because he had the position. He had the, 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 the person that they respected. And so he interceded for us. That's what Jesus does for us. He is a qualified priest who can rightly intercede before God on behalf of his people. And so this doctrine should help us to live daily with confidence and security. Let me share with you something that Louis Burkhoff has written. 
he says it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Our high priest is praying for us. The last role of a priest this morning that I want you to see is this. The priest encourages and blesses the people in God's name. And I'm going to give you two Bible passages here this morning. I tried to pick just one to make each point, but I really want you to hear both of these this morning. The first comes from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So the priest was to bless the people in the name of God. The other passage I want you to hear is this, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 2 to 4. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. So the priest had the role of speaking to the people and encouraging them as they went to battle. This is something that often Hollywood gets right. The motivational speech before the battle. And so you might think of, for example, even though it's not in the book, Aragorn at the Black Gate. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of friendship, but it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. He's infusing courage into the people as they go to battle. Or William Wallace in Braveheart. Tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. It's words of challenge and encouragement and fortification. And that's exactly what the priest was to do as the people went to battle. So the Old Testament priests bless the people in the name of God. They give encouragement when the people face battle. And Jesus ministers to his people in a very similar way. John 14 Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, troubled, neither let them be afraid. And Jesus promises that he'll send the Holy Spirit who will be with them, just like God would be with his people as they went into the battle in the Old Testament. So what do we do with that today? Take heart. Jesus has words of encouragement for us, words of blessing, words of fortification in the battle. 
The Lord blesses his people and Jesus is the one who brings the blessing to us. The Lord is with his people in battle. Jesus is the rider on the white horse. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords who leads us. I hope you can see in each of those roles of the priest that we've seen, Jesus is still fulfilling those today on behalf of his people. And that's why we say that in Christ, the ceremonial law is still valid today because Jesus is still fulfilling it for us. Let me finish with three points. I want to give you a theological point, a spiritual point, and a ministry point. First, the theological point. Jesus is fulfilling the law for us as our great high priest. When you hear the question, sometimes we'll say maybe when we kind of contrast our faith with the Roman Catholic Church. Well, we don't need a priest today. Well, guess what? We do. And we have one. We have our great high priest, Jesus. Is the ceremonial law still valid today? Yes, because Jesus is still fulfilling it for us. I want to give you a quote. This is from a document. It's called The Synopsis of a Purer Theology. This is from the early 1620s. It was for professors at Leiden University uh, following the Synod of Dort. And they were kind of giving a concise summary of the theology that had been agreed on there. Here's what they say about Jesus in his priestly ministry. Christ's priesthood is the function wherein he appears before God's presence in order to keep the law that he had received from him in our name, to present himself to him as the victim of reconciliation for our sins, and by his intercession with him to obtain for us his constant help and the gift of the Holy Spirit and to apply them to us effectively. Do you see what that says there? Christ appears before God's presence in order to keep the law in our name. He's fulfilling that law for us right now. That's the theological point. Here's the spiritual point. Rest in Jesus' work. Rest in it. Joel Beakey says this, he says, If Christ were a revealing prophet and a conquering king, but not a merciful priest to bring forgiveness and grace, then there would be no gospel for sinners. Only a revelation of justice and execution of wrath. His priesthood fills his whole office with tender mercies for those who deserve the fires of hell. We must have faith in what Jesus has done for us. But the fact that salvation is by faith means we don't work for it. We rest in what he's done for us. Listen to the role of faith as salvation is described in just three verses here from the New Testament. Romans 3.25, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And Romans 5, verse 1 and verse 11, 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. You can rest in Jesus' work. Listen to these words from John Brown of Haddington. He was a Scottish minister in the mid-1700s. Somebody asked him, when he was talking about Christ's priestly ministry, someone asked him why it is that we're opposed to receiving Christ's work as a priest. Why are we naturally opposed to that? And here's what he said. Our natural opposition to Christ's priestly office shows itself in our high esteem of our own righteousness and seeking salvation by it in whole or in part, in men's strong opposition to the doctrine of God's free grace and refusing to receive Christ as their only righteousness and frequent rushing themselves upon eternal damnation rather than be saved by him alone. Our salvation is by him alone. Rest in it. The theological point, the spiritual point, and now the ministry point. What do you do with this? Well, one thing is this. We have the ministry of reconciliation. See, the priests had the role of serving to reconcile God and man, symbolically. Jesus is the one who accomplishes it in reality. And then we are told that we are a royal priesthood. We too are priests. So we take on that role as well. We have a job. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. How do we do that? By proclaiming the good news, showing people how they can be reconciled to God. Here's how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5. God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, okay, so through the ministry of Christ as the priest, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the, the message of reconciliation, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message. Because Jesus is our great high priest and has brought us near to God and we've been reconciled to him, we now have been given the ministry of reconciliation to go and serve as a royal priesthood, showing the rest of the world how they can be reconciled to God. So Christ is fulfilling the role of priest right now for us. That means we can rest in his work. And at the same time, it means we have a job to do. We have the ministry of reconciliation, the message of the gospel to take to the world. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the picture of the priesthood and how that points us to Christ. We pray that you would help us to let these truths be cemented into our minds and our hearts. Help us to learn to trust you, to have faith, to rest in your work. And that because we love you, we would obey your law. 
And that because we've been reconciled, we would turn around as royal priests and take the message of reconciliation to the world. You've given us that ministry. Teach us how to do it well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.